you would turn in your Bibles to Luke, the third gospel, and our third kind of Christmas card for the season. <clears throat> we'll be reading uh, from Luke 1, verse 39 through 56. And as Bruce mentioned, this is Mary's uh, Magnificat, the magnifying of God. So here, God's inerrant and inspired word. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our Savior. And thank you for this letter from Luke that is handed down from generation to generation so that we may read and be amazed at how good you are towards us. Spirit, we ask that you would come into our hearts, that you would be working through this active and living word to change our hearts, to make us more like our Savior. Jesus, we praise you. We thank you that you are sitting for us even now, even as we read about what you have done. You are sitting in heaven on our behalf. We thank you, O oh God, for all these things. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen. <clears throat> Each one of these gospels that we've looked at describes the amazing work of Jesus, the amazing life of Jesus, the Messiah. 
But the particular scenes that the author choose, chooses to display shows a different emphasis, a different focus on what they want you to see about Jesus. Where the other gospels leave out or gloss over many of the particulars of Jesus' birth, Luke sought to write a orderly account of the life of Jesus. And so he wrote down all the things that were important about Jesus' birth. He spends a significant amount of space revealing these important details, two, two whole chapters. We get a closer look at the events that surrounded Jesus' birth. Without Luke's account, we wouldn't know many of these things. And our passage today picks up right after Mary was visited by Gabriel. Gabriel came to Mary. She believed, she rejoiced, she was in fear. And then right after that, Mary goes to her relative Elizabeth's house. We don't know why she left so quickly. There's probably something to do with the, the stigma, the fear, the uh, amazingness of the, the angel coming to her. Maybe she had heard about Elizabeth's miracle, that Elizabeth, even in her old age, had a miraculous baby as well. Luke doesn't say why she left. Maybe this trip was already planned, but it's clear by what happened that this was part of God's plan to testify to what he was doing through Mary. What is so unique about these verses though is that they focus on these two women, Elizabeth and Mary. Women didn't have much of a social status in that time. Their testimony normally wouldn't have counted for anything. And yet Luke recognized that God spoke through these women and wrote it down. It's part of scripture. It's a testimony from these two women about the reality of his plan of salvation. God spoke his words through them and saved these inspired words as a testimony for all generations to come. So this morning we'll be looking at this passage in two main points. We'll be looking at Elizabeth's exclamation of faith and Mary's exclamation of fear. Elizabeth's exclamation of faith and Mary's exclamation of fear. We'll talk about fear in a minute. It's not being afraid so much as the biblical sense of the fear of the Lord. We'll unpack that when we get there. So first let's look at Elizabeth's exclamation of faith. You can just imagine the great joy and welcome that Elizabeth gave to Mary. It's as if Mary is traveling, she's, she gets to Elizabeth's house and she walks in and she says, Shalom, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is just excited. She is so happy to see Mary. She comes running to her, wraps her arms around her, and she's overwhelmed by seeing Mary, and she just pours out this blessing on Mary as she welcomes her into her house. While she was surely excited to see Mary, this excitement was even more driven by the miraculous working of God in both of their lives. These three blessings show Elizabeth's hope and joy in the promises of God. They show the faith that she had and the reality of God's promises coming true. Elizabeth's first blessing is in verse 42. She says, blessed are you among women. Now Luke doesn't tell us how Elizabeth knew about Mary's pregnancy, 
but it's clear that she knew that Mary was bearing the Messiah. She says that Mary is more blessed than any other woman. This is indeed what the people of Israel, what God's people were waiting for since the beginning, since that promise of God all the way back in, in the Garden of Eden. No other woman in all of history would be called the mother of Jesus. Though many waited and believed and looked for that day, Mary was blessed to be the chosen one by God for this purpose. And therefore, it's right that Mary called her most blessed of women. Elizabeth blesses not only Mary, but through Mary, the Savior that she was bearing as well. Elizabeth's second blessing is there in verse 42 as well. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. She knows the great miracle that Mary carries. And she says that this is partially because of the miraculous sign that God had given her. Elizabeth was past her childbearing years, and yet God gave her a son. So the beginning of Luke, you can read it later if you'd like, but God came to Zechariah and promised that they would have their own child. And this child was John, the one who would go before Jesus and baptize many in the wilderness. He was the Elijah that announced the Messiah. John was also filled with the Spirit. All the way back in verse 15, Gabriel said that this baby would be filled with the Spirit even in the womb. And as he is filled with the Spirit, he testifies even in infancy to the coming of the Messiah. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. He's filled with the Spirit even as a child and testifies. And then Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit and blesses Mary. Just as a side note, what a great example of the sanctity of life, the importance of the unborn child. That even as an unborn child, the Spirit would work in John to testify about the savior of man. How precious is this life, all life of those in the womb. The third blessing that Elizabeth says is also a bit unique. She says in verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, obviously she's talking about Mary. She's blessing Mary here, that Mary listened and believed Gabriel when he came and told her the plan of God. But I think also Elizabeth is not just talking about Mary. She's not saying, blessed are you because you believed, but she says, blessed is she who believed. I think Elizabeth also has in view the many women in the lineage of, of Jesus and the life and the history of Israel who all trusted in the promise of God. Like I mentioned, this goes back to the Garden of Eden when God cursed Satan. He promised that the seed of the woman would crush Satan. First Timothy 2 looks back to this moment and says that Eve would be saved through childbearing. It's an interesting way to put it. Not because somehow having kids earns you some kind of righteousness, but because God's promise was fulfilled through the Savior being born 
of the woman. And Galatians 4 also says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. It doesn't say born of Mary, but born of a woman. So while Elizabeth is certainly blessing Mary for believing in the promises of God, she's also praising God that the promise is being fulfilled. She's seeing it, she's witnessing it right before her eyes. She herself is blessed to be standing there in the presence of the mother of Jesus. She is witnessing the fulfillment of all of God's promises throughout history. And she is really marveling at all the blessedness of all those who believe. Where is our faith founded? Is it in our own perceptions of the world, how we can move and manipulate things? Is it in our status and our power? Or is it in the promises of God, planned, promised, and perfected in this baby, in this savior who would be born of this young woman? Elizabeth's exclamation, her outpouring of blessing after blessing on Mary reveals where our faith finds its anchor. Where faith isn't just a hope, but a reality. Both Elizabeth and Mary were sure, they were confident because God was fulfilling his promises right before their eyes, or rather inside their wombs. God was making all the things he had promised come true through them and their natural reaction was a joyous and worshipful faith and trust in God. That's the focus of Elizabeth's exclamation, her faith in God, her seeing the blessings of God poured out on God's people. As we look on, back on Jesus's birth, we also have the privilege of seeing the rest of his life and the salvation that he has brought us through his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. We too are blessed to believe in what God has done. Through Elizabeth, God is showing us what faith looks like and why the faith that is founded in his promises will never disappoint. So this is Elizabeth's greeting and blessing on Mary as she comes into their home, as she, she walks in the door and Elizabeth just wraps her up and pours out this blessing on her. Her faith rings out in glorious blessing on Mary. And Mary responds with her own exclamation. Maybe not as exuberant as Elizabeth. It seems like the, the, the language seems like Elizabeth just runs to her. And I think Mary might've been a little bit taken aback by Elizabeth's great enthusiasm. But Mary in her own way exclaims her joy and her faith as she considers the glory of God. And she responds with worship and fear of the Lord. Mary was greeted by Elizabeth with abundant welcome and blessing. And even back then, I think this greeting might've been a little above and beyond, but Mary responds in a very humble way. Mary's focus is on God and giving him the glory for what he has done. Mary's focus is on praising God, on worshiping God and fearing God. When someone gives you a compliment, it can be 
one of those situations where it's hard to know how to respond sometimes. We often think of that as a skill that you learn when somebody pays you a compliment or blesses you in some way. It's, it can be a little bit awkward to know how to respond to that. But Mary doesn't seem to show any hesitation in answering Elizabeth. She isn't really worried about what Elizabeth will think of her, what she sounds like. She's so overwhelmed by the goodness of God that she isn't worried about sounding like she's has this fake humility. Her heart has been molded instead to the will of God, and she sees herself as an instrument in the hands of God, willing to do whatever pleases him. This is why she says in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in, my, in God my Savior. This section is often called the Magnificat, which is the Latin word for magnifying. And in response to Elizabeth's blessing, Mary magnifies her God. She makes her God great. She pours out the blessing that she's received and, and points it back to God. She isn't focused on how special it is to be the mother of the Messiah. And think about that. That's a, that's a really amazing thing. Elizabeth calls her blessed among all women. That's a, a wondrous and amazing thing. And yet Mary isn't focused on that, but she's focused on the goodness of God. Even when she talks about all the future generations looking back and calling her blessed, this isn't her pride saying, I finally, I've gotten what I deserve. I'm finally being recognized. But she's realizing, she's recognizing the mercy of God and the salvation that he is bringing through her. This is not an expression of pride, but of humiliation, of humbleness for her part in God's plan. And she's marveling that anyone, much less all the future generations, would call her blessed. But here she is watching God work through her life to fulfill her prom his promises. Her faith is indeed great. And Mary says that God has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. The humble estate of his servant. That's a little bit odd language, it's fancy language. I think we may not understand, may not really fully get what, what that's saying unless we pause on that phrase a little bit. She isn't saying that it was a miracle that God noticed her or even paid her any attention, but she's saying something much deeper than that. She's saying that God saw her and he came down to her level. God wasn't ashamed to make this poor, otherwise unknown, insignificant girl the mother of the savior of the world. God saw her and knew her completely, and yet he delighted in working his plan through her. Not only does God know us as creator, but God comes to us as a friend. And he doesn't ignore or push aside all the mess of our world, but he pushes into that mess so that he can lift us up out of it. This is what God does so many times. He comes to the last, the least, the lost, and the little. 
He meets us in our weaknesses and raises us out of despair. He gives us a hope and a life that is abundant and free to worship and to glorify him. He who is mighty, the mighty and glorious God, delighted to enter into our world and to do wonderful things for us. He's come to right what was wrong and to bring justice and peace into our world. And Mary seems to be as one, like Luke says, who treasures up all these things in her heart and ponders over them. She meditates on them and thinks about them. It's likely as she traveled to, Mary, or to Elizabeth's house that she pondered over these things and, and marveled at what God was doing through her. And the outcome of this meditation, this pondering, is a deep and beautiful fear of God. In verse 50, Mary says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And I think this exclamation of Mary is really, the focal point there is her reaction. What, what happens when she sees all that God has done? She fears God. Mary's whole Magnificat is about God and what God has done, except for this. Mary hasn't done anything to wedge herself into God's plan or to improve upon God's plan. She couldn't. Her only action is in response to what God has done. She can only see what God has done and fear him in response. Scripture talks about the fear of the Lord or fearing the Lord in many ways in many places. Proverbs calls the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom. Deuteronomy 13 says, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. Psalm 2 says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So there's an aspect of the fear of the Lord that beholds his power and is in awe of his gloriousness. But even the demons fear God in this way. When Jesus went out to cast out several demons in his ministry, they often asked him if he had come to torture them or to destroy them. They were afraid. They were afraid of him. But what about for us who are now called to be children of God? Is the fear of God only awe of his power? Well, Jeremiah, all, the prophet also speaks of, a, of the fear of God, but he, he speaks about it in a different way, in a different aspect of the fear of God. God speaks through him and says in Jeremiah 32, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing good to them and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Jeremiah links the fear of the Lord with the goodness of God. And again, in the next chapter, it's even more obvious, more explicit than that. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear 
and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity that I provide for it. Jeremiah shows us that for us, true fear also has an aspect, also focuses on the Lord and his goodness and mercy. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity that I provide for it. So there is an overwhelming awe of God, but also this affection for God, for what he has done. The fear of God works in us to have awe and affection. The fear of the Lord actually draws us closer to him. As we love him, as we desire him, we are drawn closer to him. John Bunyan, the English Puritan that wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, also wrote a book called The Fear of God. He speaks of this awe and affection as well. He says, this godly fear also flows from a sense of the love and the kindness of God to the soul, where there is no sense or hope of the kindness and mercy of God by Jesus Christ, there can be none of this fear, but rather wrath and despair, which produces that fear that is evil, devilish, either devilish or else that which is only wrought in us by the spirit as a spirit of bondage. Indeed, nothing can lay a stronger obligation upon the heart to fear God than sense of or hope in mercy." This begets true tenderness of heart, true godly softness of spirit. This truly endears the affections to God. And in this true tenderness, softness, and endearedness of affection to God lies the very essence of the sphere of the Lord. Let me read that last sentence again. In this true tenderness, softness, and endearedness of affection to God lies the very essence of of the fear of the Lord. It's a challenging concept. It's hard for us to understand, I think, the fear in a sense of abundant love and affection. It's often challenging for us to understand this and I think even more challenging to practice. Does our fear of God look like an overwhelming awe and affection? Does our fear of God cause us to hide from his wrath or to run to his merciful presence with adoration and worship? If we want to grow in our practice of fearing the Lord, then we must grow in our knowledge and apprehension of what he has done for us. Mary says that his mercy is for those who fear him. This doesn't mean that we have to fear him before he pours out his mercy on us. God's word is sure even before we believe. But it's a kind of cycle that helps us grow in the fear of the Lord. When we believe in his word, God's mercy is poured out on us. We fear him as we get to know who he is, even if we don't understand what that fear really means, what that fear really looks like. And as God's mercy is poured out on us, we grow in our understanding of who he is and what he's done for us. 
and we fear him all the more. The fear of the Lord grows as we meditate on the great things and the mercies are poured out more and more and it continues as we are sanctified by his spirit. We grow in fear and in knowledge of who he is. The fear of the Lord grows as we meditate on these great things, the great things that he has done for us. And this is why Mary continues to praise God for the wonderful things he has done. God is the one who rights all wrongs and lifts us up out of our misery. She has seen and experienced how God can flip the normal patterns of a broken world and heal those who are lowly and empty. Notice how she talks about what God has done in verses 51 through 53. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. It's amazing to see all of those themes, all the links in these verses to the Old Testament. The wisdom literature of Psalms and Proverbs and the prophets like Isaiah are full of these types of promises, these images. God will humble the proud while raising up the humble. He will leave the rich with nothing, but the poor he will fill with abundance. Mary was poor. She was humble. She knew what it meant to hope and wait upon the promises of God. But God isn't flipping the tables and just swapping places. He's not just exchanging the rich for the poor and the poor for the rich. And this isn't saying that there's something about being poor or hungry that makes you better than someone who is rich and mighty. Our social status doesn't earn anything with God. But what so often happens with riches and fullness is that you start to feel like you've got it all under control. You start to feel proud that you've actually accomplished something. You start to feel like you're a good person and all the blessings that you're receiving must be a sign that God is pleased with you because of something you've done. Pride of self-sufficiency is a deadly poison that is almost impossible to detect. It poisons you little by little until you have lost all sight of your need, of your sinfulness. If you are mighty, you do not need a mighty God. But Mary, humble and poor, knew that she needed a savior. Even the poor can be proud and arrogant sometimes. But Mary knew that she was just as sinful as you and me. She says in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. She was resting not in her own power, but in the power of God. The life of humility and dependence of God is the life that God will bless with joy and goodness. That's what Mary is exulting in. Now that doesn't mean that this life is easy. It's not as if Mary's life was perfect after this and they had all the money and food that they ever needed. I'm sure the gifts that the wise men brought were valuable, but not make you a king valuable. Mary's life and Jesus's life 
was full of suffering and need. But even if we do not receive these good things and the joy, the fullness of joy in this life, that's what God's promises are all about. That's why Mary says that God has done this. She's believing, she's showing us that God is faithful and that we will receive the blessings of God. And even if we receive good in this life, it pales in comparison to the good that God has waiting for us in heaven. God exalts the humble and fills the hungry with good things. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Mary finishes her Magnificat by recalling God's promises to Abraham and all of Israel. The next, in the, in the final verses there, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary's affirming that God has done what he promised. He has given us the savior that we needed. She knew that. She was carrying that savior in her womb. She raised him as a child, watched through his perfect ministry and life. She stood at the cross as he died for her sins and for the sins of the world. She believed in and feared this God, man. She drew near to him in awe and adoration. She feared God. And through that, she found her hope in him. Now, did she do that perfectly? No. There were times when she failed even as his mother but she did it in faith, knowing that God is faithful to his promises, even when we fail, even when we are unfaithful. She knew that God raises up those who are humble and needy. The takeaway for us is that we too need to have faith and to fear God like these women. Luke chose to put this part of the story into his letter to show us what true faith and true fear of God looks like and to show us the value, the blessing of true faith and fear of God. You can search all your life, but you won't find the blessings of God in your own pursuits of power. You won't find it there. You can have all the goods of this world, but you won't find the joy and the blessings of God. God came to save the last, the least, the lost, and the little. It's us. God came to save us from our sins through Jesus. And that's what he did because Mary had that baby and he grew up. He lived his life and he died on the cross for us. Like Mary and Elizabeth, we too must draw near to God in all and adoration, blessing his name because of what he has done. We must fear God in faith. He who is mighty has done great things for us. Let's pray. 
O great, almighty God, what wonderful things you have done. Father, we admit that we are weak. We are lost. We are least. And yet, God, you have rescued us. Even in our failure to have full faith and and fear of you, you come to our weakness. You build us up. You raise us out of our weakness. So God, we ask that you would give us more faith. You would increase our faith. You would increase our fear of you. Not that we would be afraid of you, but that we would be in awe of your power and run to you in adoration, in overwhelming adoration at what you have done for us. We pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen.